1: Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe.
2: And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. you find the world's finest podcast for music that doesn't settle for walking. We're going to start this episode off, per usual, with a little bit of trivia.
3: You know more i'm
1: gonna go first for this episode with the audio round and i'm gonna play five clips of music i'd like for you to name the artist and song and then i'd like for you to tell me the ad that they were featured in okay and i don't even really care about the artist and song but it'd be nice of you to name them for the folks at home. Track four, just so you know, is not the person that you think it is.
2: <laughs> okay. All right. So you're you're gonna play a song that was famously in a commercial, and I just have to say what the song is and say what the uh, commercial was for.
1: These were actually obscurely in commercials. Oh
2: God. Okay. Good. Good.
1: I think two of them were pretty big. All right. Some were not. <laughs> All right, here we go. Track one, your servant, don't forsake him. Strike your mistress and kill his heart. Track two,
4: count down, engines are. Check ignition,
1: and may God's love be with you, mm-hmm. this
5: is control, track 3, oh. Oh, the song?
1: track 4,
5: got cooking. About cooking something up. track what 5, track 5, track
4: 5, track 5, track 5, track track 5, track from a tree And I made believe it
2: was me Okay.
1: Feel pretty good about that?
2: Ooh. I don't know if I can get too many of the commercials, but... I'll see what I can do. Who knew the Velvet Underground got two songs into, into commercials?
1: Great. Blow it. That's spoiler. <laughs> Who knew that those... There, there might not be any Velvet Underground songs in there. There might not be. There may not be. We will play those... Tracks again at the end of the episode and with the answer, so stay tuned.
2: All right. You ready for some non-audio? Sure. This one's called Don't Quit Your Day Job. And so I'm going to read a clue about a certain rocker, musicians, basically what they did before they became famous, or sometimes concurrently as they were getting famous. And you just have to tell me who the rock star is. Okay. All right, here goes. Number one, as a dishwasher and pizza cook at the Napoleone Pizza House, this guy could barely hold on till his late Saturday night piano bar gigs. Tom Waits. Very good. The one and only. Before he was on Fernwood Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, she worked on a toy assembly line in a factory that almost certainly smelled like piss. I don't know. That is Patty Smith.
1: Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. Okay.
2: She was Thank you. Good one. She said it was horrible there. <laughs> Number 3. A rocker who spent most of his band's early days as a hungover elementary school teacher and probably used a fake British accent when awarding the kids their gold stars. Robert Pollard. Excellent. You got. It. You got it. Could you imagine having him as your teacher? <laughs>
1: Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. He was also like a
2: great baseball player, I think, too. Yeah, he pitched a no-hitter. no, no hitter. Yeah, oh, good. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah, which is better than any game I've ever pitched. Number four. Working at Dunkin' Donuts was no holiday for this singer, but she eventually expressed her dissatisfaction by squirting jelly from a donut at a customer, also while probably using a fake British accent. Madonna? Madonna, very good. Okay, this one has two answers. Both a Britpop and grunge icon worked as fishmongers, scooping tuna out of rusty cages like common people.
3: Jarvis Cocker? Uh-huh.
1: And... a guy from Blur.
2: No, Chris Cornell is the other one. Oh, okay. I thought it was weird that two pretty legendary singers both worked in fish markets.
1: Or is it?
2: (laughs) No coincidence here. All right, number six. New York avant gardist who spent his days driving a taxi and working as a plumber, probably installing some out-there clear pipes.
1: John Cage, Philip Glass. Okay, okay. Good one. Who's a plumber?
2: Number 7. This singer worked as a grave digger for a brief stint, but no matter how many different ways he dug a hole, it came out just the same.
1: Paul McCartney? <laughs> I'm fixing a hole. <laughs> oh, I don't know.
2: That's Rod Stewart.
1: Thank you. Oh, okay. Okay. Good one.
2: Yeah. It's kind of a deep deep cut clue there.
1: No, it's a very good clue. I couldn't couldn't catch up to it.
2: <laughs> this grave digger thinks you're sexy. Do you think he's sexy? <laughs> <laughs> if you think he's sexy and if you have a body. <laughs> this is <a> great.
1: <laughs> Gosh, it's funny that he would dig A grave, because six feet down would be like three of him.
2: (laughs) Never get out. All right, number eight. This famous front man started as a porter at a psychiatric hospital, where he lost his virginity to a nurse after he rambled into a closet after midnight.
3: Um...
1: Eric Clapton. Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. Oh, okay, okay. He started yeah. strong. God. Yep, died. <laughs> I'll be having Rod Stewart dig my grave.
2: <laughs> All three of them. Three little Rod Stewart's digging grave. <laughs> They're like oopaloopas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number nine. This rocker enjoyed tripping acid while frying cod and hush puppies at Long John Silver's, which might explain why he was always surrounded by people in bunny costumes.
1: The guy from Flaming Lips. I see. Wayne, whatever the Flaming yep. Lips guy's Wayne last name Coyne. is, I can't think of it. Wayne yeah. Coyne. Yeah. Wayne okay. Coyne. Okay. Very good. Thank you for the thank you for the bunny clue. Yep.
2: I was trying. I really was trying. All right. Last one. You should get this one. This eccentric had an upholstery shop, but it only repaired furniture in two colors. Jack White. You got it. You got it.
1: Alright, that was fun. I like that I like that one a lot. I'd like to do that one again. That's a good topic. Yeah, it's kinda interesting. You ready to move into the turntable talk?
2: Oh you betcha.
5: Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they say. Only the echoes of my mind.
1: Oh, jeepers, Maud Olson thought to herself. Look at all those boxes. At the small grocer near her house, the Olaf, Minnesotan housewife felt overwhelmed looking at the vast array of cold cereal options. At least four or five to choose from. Armor's cornflakes. Muffet's shredded wheat. Quakey's cereal. Kellogg's crumbles. Maud shook her head with indecision and started wringing her hands. Like a cozy sweater, Maud was a firm believer in the warm, hearty nutrition of cream of wheat. These cardboard, rectangular vessels were a new world to her. She had little choice but to go with them. Harold and the boys were going ice fishing on Lake Winnabigoshish with the new tackle they got for Christmas last week, and they planned on being gone early in the morning. She heard her beloved's voice, No time for hot breakfast on Saturday on early bird and all, you know. Honestly, she didn't mind all that much. She had a hot dish to make for the Lutheran ladies' New Year dinner, and the pot roast for Sunday supper, of course and she had to get to the butcher in time to grab her contribution for the meat raffle at the 4-H. Then, like a sign from above, a little tune echoed from the back of Maud's mind.
5: Have you tried Wheaties? They're whole wheat with all of the bran. Won't you try Wheaties? For wheat is the best food of man. They're crispy and crunchy the whole year through. The kiddies never tire of them and neither will you. So just buy Weezy's the best breakfast food in the land.
1: The song was from one of Harry's WCCO radio programs. Those sweet-sounding fellas singin', Wheat is the best food of man, made Maud smile and the choice was clear. She reached for the orange and blue box and rested it gently in the cart, nestling it between a tub of mayonnaise and some crullers, she grabbed for the boys' drive up north. The ditty swirled whimsically in her head as she proceeded to procure the rest of her provisions for the week. Unbeknownst to the happily humming shopper, she and thousands of her generational peers were at the start of an unholy marriage of music and advertising. A collision of commerce and art where musicians would rent out their likeness, endorsements, and songcraft to goods and services, producing the strangest of bedfellows. Johnny Cash pitching 69-cent tacos. Bob Dylan lurking about Victoria's Secret photo shoots. Johnny Rotten churning out butter ads, and Snoop Dogg rapping about the joys of Hot Pockets. And really, is there anything finer than a hot pocket after a long evening's weed, gin, and cold medicine? Don't
5: change the drizzle, turn it up a lizzle,
1: got some cheesy drizzle,
5: dripping on my chisel, waiting on the bristle, the pizzle, the jeez, when the cheese hits your tongue, it'll scream, Oh shit. Hungry kids in the crib, my Pocket like it's hard, pocket like it's hard, pocket like it's hard. When the Craven's got a hold of you. Pocket like it's hard, pocket like it's hard, pocket like it's hard. By
2: 1926... Washburn Crosby Company was ready to pool their failing brand of non-flour-based wheat brand flakes after several successive years of disappointing sales. In a final act of desperation, Vice President Donald Davis had an idea. Rum some special promotional songs on a radio station that they co-owned in the Minneapolis media market, Davis wanted to find out what this newfangled radio was good for. The station manager and publicity man got to work rewriting lyrics of the chorus to a popular 1919 song called Jazz Baby. They enlisted a local barbershop quartet that consisted of an undertaker, a court bailiff, a printer, and a businessman. They'd pushed out the Indian cowboy and the construction worker. (laughs) Recording technology wasn't readily available, so they had to come in and perform the song live each week. And it turned out they would do this for the next three years. The song was massively successful. This was only apparent because sales of Wheaties skyrocketed in Minnesota, where more than half of all the boxes of Wheaties were sold within the circle of influence from the WCCO radio tower. Deciding that this form of entertaining advertising might be something, Washburn Crosby, shortly to become General Mills, took the campaign nationally. The cereal was saved, and in a few years adopted the handle of Breakfast of Champions. Have You Tried Wheaties? is considered the world's first jingle commercial, a testament to the power of music to induce emotional responses in listeners. Certainly, commercial interest in music was not a new concept. For centuries, royalty has commissioned works from artists whose creative ambitions were compelled, if not empowered, through financial compensations, and the possibility of greater renown. On the other end of the spectrum, some nursery rhymes show how vendors use songs to help sell their wares. Think about Hot Cross Buns and Molly Malone's Cockles and mussels ringing out across an open-air market, leading hungry patrons and their money to the shops. The flow works both directions. Money can create art. Art can create money. And they are constantly interacting. So, don't touch that dial, and stay tuned for a word from sponsors. Not ours, but lots of other people's. Take all the cash out of your wallets and get ready to spend, spend, spend. Today, we explore the literal commercialization of rock music.
5: Hey there, wild thing, here come the trucks Hey there, little despair. saying on the radio. With
1: as radio and eventually television became a fixture in American homes, a celebrity culture was solidified. With this fascination with the people that we hear and see almost daily, there was a longing to understand them, a striving for connection that lets people feel like they really know who this star is, and maybe that star could know who they really are as well. These conditions of idol worship created a lucrative playing field for companies to draw upon the status of fame to sell their goods. Beyond the normal response that music can invoke in listeners, the draw was much stronger if the message came from a recognized, trusted, and desirable source, like Bill Cosby. (laughs) Musical ads appealed directly to emotions and moods of the consumer attempting to sway them toward or from a company's target. Songs can be utilized, adapted, or created to plant seeds influencing decision-making. There is no one way to do this. Making a catchy, memorable jingle that earworms itself into one's consciousness. Introducing a powerful musical moment during an emotional commercial. Adopting a lyrical turn of phrase to make a moment funny or exhilarating or poignant. Hitting a target audience by using the right star in the right place on the right medium. Or maybe just making the ever-invasive commercial presence somewhat interesting and entertaining, when by all rights it should be mind-numbingly dull. Music has the power to do all this. So do the musicians who make the music. The greater the attachment to the song or the artist, the greater power it wields. This is only one side of the equation, however. The other questions are what are artists willing to compromise to sell a product by either singing songs they would never have done, or changing their lyrics to sell songs? And more importantly, is the impact of music and musician lessened when there is a commercial interest in their sound? To touch on this, we need to discuss the most notorious two-word label that can be hung on an artist, Sellout.
2: Who can fairly be described as a sellout? Where's the line between trying to reach a wider audience and compromising your art? Is the latter even possible? Songs and ads are rarely associated with the product for very long. As nauseating as it may be to hear Pink Moon selling Volkswagens, is it defaming the song or Nick Drake? Will anyone 20 years from now, upon hearing that song, still think of the Volkswagen ad? Nope. For a song to lose control to a brand, it needs years and years of hammering it into viewers and listeners. Bob Seeger, for example, can't play like a rock without everyone listening thinking about a Chevy truck. This taint might be permanent. Even as early as 1965, future shill Bob Dylan laughed about one day making commercials for ladies' undergarments. So we're
4: going to sell out to a commercial interest. Which one would you choose? <laughs>
2: Bob? Head. Um, ladies' garments.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> by 2005, that had happened. Now, the Nobel Prize winner for literature hawks goods for easy money. Does it lessen his work? Apparently not, if you have any respect for the Nobel Prize committee.
1: An artist's integrity rarely suffers a blow by making a commercial with one of their songs, despite the phrase sellout for most of its life being a pejorative term. In the early 20th century, selling out was used by leftists and unions to describe corporations making money off of their work. In the 60s, it was used by hippies to describe people who'd given up on that utopian vision of taking acid and living in a van for the next few decades. As a way of describing musicians, it became prominent in the 40s, mostly in black communities, as a way of shunning artists who'd started tailoring their acts to be more palatable to white audiences. The biggest victim of this was Louis Armstrong. When accused of selling out, he continued to prove that what he was doing was uplifting the black community by always having integrated bands and proving that jazz, whether performed by small combos in southern clubs or large music halls, is a music that any American can be proud of. Duke Ellington unfairly suffered these pointed attacks as well. The idea of selling out in music isn't based on race nearly as much as it had been in the past. Now, practically anyone can be accused of selling out by making more accessible music or by selling products in commercials or by falling into a hit song that sounds just like the songs they used to make. Fans can be brutal toward bands when new people discover the music that they feel like they possessed. Many artists today seem to care a lot more about their brand than they do about their art, but brand has always been important. Going back to Dylan, who wriggle-wriggled out of being branded so often that it became his brand, anyone with any longevity in the music business has a brand, and how they choose to market that brand can have lasting and sometimes devastating effects. For most musicians, they're simply looking for recognition in some way, To find listeners who have many of the same personal feelings and obsessions. Finding a way to separate yourself from those around you playing in the same clubs isn't easy. Most bands never do it at all. So when you've been touring for years, barely eking out a living, and someone says they want to use your song in an ad, is it worth the risk to not take the money?
2: Really, it is sort of a tedious discussion. This podcast has long documented how artists are constantly fighting for financial control of their intellectual properties, and mostly end up making plenty of money for plenty of other people. In recent years, it appears there is a more global understanding that there is a difference between selling and selling out, being entitled to a piece of the pie that they themselves baked, usually after years of work. Artistic compromises must be made constantly. Most are not of a Faustian level of soul-selling to simply make bank from the man. Most are little decisions that are required to progress a career. Changes to obtain more fans, to appease bandmates, to ensure record companies release your music, to make a sound that appeals to more than 15 people, to be comfortable with yourself, maybe just to sleep in a hotel or take a shower. Need we remind you of the butthole surfers whose five members lived exclusively in a car with a dog for years to play music and get a following, only to have that following turn on them when MTV played one of their songs. If Gibby and the boys want to sell Walgreens home enema kits, you know I'm the first in line to buy one.
1: I'm already there.
2: <laughs> You're getting one anyways.
1: I've got one in right now. <laughs> How else could I do that Minnesota accent?
2: (laughs) Oh, jeepers.
1: (laughs) Talking about squeezing jelly out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, here comes the cream of wheat. That thing's all the way up to Duluth. The exposure is often as valuable as the pay, but that can work both ways as well. Certainly, there are many kids from the early 90s who wouldn't know who Ray Charles was without the constant bombardment of Diet Pepsi commercials with a blind piano man singing about the right one baby. And yes, he may unfortunately stay that Diet Pepsi guy to the vast majority of viewers. There are those who will take this discovery, run with it, and seek out the reality of the genius behind the advert.
1: He's Stevie Wonder's dad, right? Yep.
2: Regardless of
1: where you stand on rock stars peddling goods and services... There is no shortage of mind-boggling relics of the experience that are often worth taking time to revisit and ponder the why and how it happened. Sure, money and fame are probably always the main factors, but most artists must have been aware of the damning perception of selling out, but still had to work up the nerve to allow themselves to push that coke or deal that speed stick. We're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about the most prominent intersections of rock stars and commercials, which range from those that were effective, inspiring, and memorable to those that were jarring, off-putting, and hilarious. We're going to stick to times when the musicians actually interacted with the product, either writing or rewriting music for it, or lending their likeness and endorsement to it. So we're skipping ads where the music was simply licensed like when Yoko and Michael Jackson sold the Beatles' Revolution to Nike against the wishes of the surviving Fab 3, or the Stones taking $6 million for everyone to endure Start Me Up on countless Windows 95 spots, or U2 digitally carpet-bombing their new album on unsuspecting Apple users. There are countless examples of this, of course. In many senses, music licensure has sadly replaced jingle writing as the norm for modern marketing. But as fun as it would be to talk about how weird it is to hear the violent femmes blister in the sun playing on an ad for Wendy's, really, where's the beef in that? No, we want to get into the artists that went deeper and got personally involved in the marketing, who knew right where they were putting that beef.
2: Here's the thing about when the artist goes all in on advertising. It's all so much fun. Many of these tunes that were created for merchandising motives are just as great as the music they were making to sell themselves. Sometimes the jingles gave a perspective on how the artists themselves thought their boiled-down essence would sound, an artist covering or parodying themselves in a way. The bizarre endorsements and manufactured music often was intentionally terrible, which in turn makes it instantly memorable. They humanized the heroes and highlighted the common ground we share with the stars, that we all occasionally live inauthentic lives to get by. The interwoven development of mass media, marketing, and music is certainly twisty history, but one that is relatively recent. Starting with commercial radio in the 1920s, brands would use in-house music as primarily mnemonic devices and vehicles for brand loyalty. The King Biscuit Time radio program would bring on musicians, notably bluesman Sonny Boy Williamson, to play some tunes and sell some flour. Likewise, country yodeler, singing breakman Jimmy Rogers pitched Biscuits on his weekly radio show, and a couple decades later, rock heartthrob Jimmy Rogers sang of Beautiful Girls Who Used Halo Shampoo in 1958. Here's
5: Jimmy Rogers, popular young roulette recording star. Oh, you can always tell a halo girl, you can tell by the shine of her hair. Magic of a Halo girl goes with her everywhere One look and you sure stars are twinkling there For Halo has
3: magic. To glorify.
2: There would be regular celebrity endorsements occasionally featuring musicians and music, usually on radio or television shows that they were hosting. Stuff like Frank Sinatra selling wristwatches or Bing Crosby and Al Jolson yucking it up about Philco record changers. You'll make friends of
6: every stranger with a Philco record changer from the table size to those that weigh a ton. Or to make your life ecstatic, we can't be too emphatic. Get that brand new automatic, 1201. Around the late
1: 60s, the dam broke open and a slew of companies started using star endorsements for their products, or as journalist Carrie McLaren put it, consumer counterculture. The post-war baby boom meant that there were a lot of impressionable young people watching lots of television who would be begging their parents to buy the right kind of soda pop or brand of jeans or cereal. One of the greatest examples of this was the Rolling Stones' 1964 jingle for Rice Krispies, which is at least as good as Angie. Wake
5: up in the morning, there's a snap around the face. Wake up in the morning, there's a crackle in your face. Wake up in the morning, there's a pop that really says nice. This is to you, and you, and you. For on the milk and listen to the snap that says it's nice. For on the milk and listen to the crackle of that rice. Get up in the morning,
1: The world's most dangerous band was still pre-satisfaction and hadn't quite achieved worldwide fame at this point, but they were still big enough in the UK to sell this part of a complete nutritious breakfast. The jingle penned by Brian Jones, dubbed Snap Crackle Pop, was not only a blatant money grab, but also inspired by the sound Keith Richards' veins make when he smells heroin. While we're talking about cereal... We probably need to mention how Rice Krispies also gave both the Partridge Family and the monkeys a series of commercials about the family-friendly breakfast. There was a particularly unsettling one where Davey, Mickey, and Michael performed surgical cereal preparations over their prone, lifeless bass player.
4: Peter has a lean and hungry look.
6: Yes, and I'm afraid he's sinking fast.
4: We must operate immediately. (laughs) Boom.
6: Sugar. Milk, 90 cc's of Kellogg's Rice Krispies. <laughs> I think the patient's responding to the Rice Krispies, Doctor.
5: Congratulations,
4: sir! A brilliant use of Snap, Crackle, and Pop. With enough Rice Krispies, will he be able to play the bass again? Yes. That's kind of weird. He never could before.
1: The monkeys also did commercials for Kool-Aid, Nerf, and Yardley's Black Label Cologne. It's like they were only in it for the money or something. In fairness, the cologne song is basically the invention of cosmic country.
5: Black Label. The new aftershave that's really out of sight. Be the guy who's got it. Got it all. Black Label. Get it.
2: Not to be outdone by Sugar Smacks, Soda Pop was maybe the biggest user of celebrity endorsements of that or any era. The Cola Wars musician-based ad campaigns burst into televisions in the late 60s. Coke and Pepsi dominated the market. But Royal Crown tried to snap up a few shekels with Nancy Sinatra singing this ad in '67.
4: Escape!
2: Coke spent a large portion of their marketing resources obtaining soul singing royalty and ended up with what would make for an unbelievable full album release. There's Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell singing simple scenes of falling in love with Coke, always perfectly product placed.
3: By the creek
4: Swinging in a swing That always squeaks.
2: Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles Belted out two great songs about coke In
5: 1969 no, no, so long
3: Bring on the good, good times, times, darling
5: coke yeah. and the lights down low Times like, like this, I get, get to feeling better. better With you and me Talking, Talking. yeah, people Hey, hey, hear me Whoa, let me fill you in on how I can make your worries fly. What did all I have a Coca-Cola? I'll be glad to let it because try. Because things go better. Coca-Cola. Love, things go. Better.
2: And Otis Redding reworked a classic for a 90-second commercial that he sounds as heartfelt about as ever.
5: Cabram. A woman with the love that's so real Can even make a bag of peanuts seem like a choice's meal And you know that goes better with
2: Coca-Cola
5: Yeah, things go better
2: with Coke Coke didn't stop pummeling the competition with legit soul stars either. In 67, they also found a way to convince The Who to sell out with this ad. Golden Earring was kept on people's radars with this commercial.
3: Things go better with Coca-Cola. Things go better with Coke. Wood goes better with fun. Goes bad or with Coca-Cola. All right, fellas, come here. Do you want to go? Yeah, it's yeah. yes, all right.
1: During the same time period, Pepsi was able to swoop in and steal the turtles away from nobody.
5: One, two, three, four, five, five. Tastes like, Pepsi Pepsi Pepsi
3: Pepsi
1: Pepsi Pepsi really took the world by fire in the 80s, not the 60s. In addition to Michael Jackson, they maintained a middling second place with the likes of Lionel Richie, the Spice Girls, and Britney Spears. Beyonce, however, is a Pepsi star, so maybe they have actually won. Oh, and they also somehow lured Ray Charles to Pepsi. Coke really never stopped with a tremendous flair for finding great artists at exactly the right time. Jack White put out probably his best solo track as a Coke ad. I'm sure this will be released on Record Store Day 2021, and the record will be made out of actual
2: regurgitated corn syrup. You have to play the record from the top down
3: one thing you'll learn you can bet is that love is as good as it gets and you'll get more if you give it it's the right thing to do and you know it's inside of you so just show it love is the truth
1: Coke also had hit commercials with Whitney Houston, Elton John, a pre-fake airplane crash Paula Abdul, and this beauty from Kim Carnes.
3: It's a in the heat of the day.
1: Patty Smythe and Scandal, right in the midst of their brief stardom with both of their songs, The Warrior and Goodbye to You, helped out a friend by making a jingle for Frank's Soda.
2: And while we'll get to the fashion cars and booze ads that are at least congruent with images of superstar decadence, it was also very common for fans to get full on the food products that rockers stuff their famous maws with on camera. The powdered shake mix, Great Shakes, landed some of the biggest British invasion and garage bands to help the kids bring home that soda fountain feel. The Who, the Blues Magoo's, the Spencer Davis Group, the Tokens, Dusty Springfield, and the Yardbirds all jerked for that flavored milk jingle. Hey,
3: hey. Any place can be a sort of fountain now. With grey shakes, new great shakes. Shake it up with milk and make the rich thick shake. New great shakes.
1: Funk Shaman George Clinton left the mothership just long enough to plug Burger King's breakfast mini muffins and French toast sticks. We can't confirm this, but it's likely BK's morning menu was inspired by the earlier funkadelic song Ship Backwash Mini Muffin French Toast Stick Tender Tots Psychosis Enema Squad."
2: There's a wild new breakfast at Burger King.
5: A brand new state of mind.
1: Please let's not get crazy.
5: Many muffins are. brown and too. will be
2: The 80s and 90s presented a strange phenomena of aging country singers giving it their all for fast food. Mel Tillis did a series of ads for Whataburger which occasionally would make fun of his stutter. Doesn't really stand the test of time too well.
0: Hey, you know there's a big, big difference between a Waterburger and all the other burgers whataburger c- c- cooks makes their burgers just the way you want it. and you can order a whataburger with just the right in,
5: in- ingredients in- the
0: fixing that you want and whataburger never skimps on c-
5: quality value so remember it's, it's not, not just, just a hamburger a- it's a whataburger
1: what can one do after you've shot a man in Reno just to watch him die? Well, the man in black suggests making a run for the border to stock up on low-priced Mexican delights.
5: Well, nobody has more choices for just a little cash. You can search the whole world over, and no matter who you ask, they say Taco Bell has more choices for just a little cash. You better make a run for the border, son, you better make a border dash. We're talking under a dollar. Nobody beats Taco Bell. Where else you gonna get so many choices with just a little cash?
1: Afterwards, you'll be walking the line to the bathroom. Your ass will be a real ring of fire and make you cry, cry, cry.
2: And what surely was done in exchange for a lifetime supply of 24-hour munchies and possible tax shelters? Willie Nelson wrote a pretty little story song for the Bell.
3: He got off the bus at the border, went up drove the woman with the rose tattoo. She offered him a ride, and when he got inside, she offered him something new. A steak burrito supreme from Taco Bell, she insisted that he try it. And a new
6: zesty steak melt from Taco Bell, he'd never had nothing like it. And when he tried the steaks off Taco, all of a sudden he knew. That he'd always be indebted
3: for the rest of his life To the woman with the rose tattoo
2: Afterward, he was definitely on the throne again With blue eyes, crying from the strain
1: Waylon got in on the fast, casual action too Teaming up with Willie for an ad for Pizza Hut About dumping women because they ate pizza the wrong way And probably because she was having their stuff crust love children
5: She was everything a man could ever want But I just had to let her go She said, darling, we can work it out I said, honey, I don't think so See, the two of
6: us are not the same We're as different as night and day
5: Now there's pepperoni in the crust I gotta eat mine the wrong way. Crust first. There's a new stuffed crust pizza from Pizza Hut. With not just cheese, but
6: pepperoni baked right into the crust. I'm a little lonely.
2: a Small price to pay for pepperoni. Even with all this fantastic fattening fodder, there are two edible economic excursions that are true feast for the soul. The runner-up is Cinderella's cable-access hair metal ode to Pat's Chili Dogs. The band was friends with the owner of this classic Philly establishment, And smothered this baby with all the beef, beans, and cheese a tubed meat can handle.
1: Far and away, the best commercial of all time was 1992's James Brown's Nissen Miso Soup Spectacular. Potentially the pinnacle of human potential. With the gravitational pull of a black hole, viewers are drawn into a gritty VHS world of blue sequin suits, boiling kettles, karate chop spoon dancing, a desperate plea for a bail bondsman, A Japanese rewriting of Sex Machine and a cup of noodle that surely had cocaine sprinkled in it. Long after I quit watching the video, the images were burned into my psyche like it was the hardest working acid trip in show business. Here's the audio, which is amazing on its own, but trust us, you need to go back and check it out on YouTube.
2: And since now we have a contact hangover, let's move into beer ads. In 1976, Schlitz was the second biggest beer company in the country. Then Robert Euline happened. To cut cost and compete with Anheuser Busch, Euline added corn syrup and silica gel to the beer, which caused a recall of 10 million cases. Wait, it gets worse. Then Schlitz ran an ad campaign that may have been the most disastrous of all time. It's studied in marketing classes as what not to do. Commercials that basically said, if you try to take my Schlitz, I will kill you. And they ran for about 10 weeks, making viewers uncomfortable to say the least. Schlitz almost disappeared and was purchased by Strohs, who shut down themselves in 1999. Anyway, that little bit of history was solely provided because of how much I hate the u When Strohs took over, they tried desperately to repair the Schlitz image by having near has take the reign of a near has beer.
1: For most of these, Schlitz used odd combos of bands in the same ad, like this one with the Drifters and Sky playing carnival games, tightly holding stuffies, and arguing the merits of regular beer versus malt liquor.
5: A lion, let's all give a cheer and celebrate with a cold beer. Oh, oh. Beer does not compare to the taste of a bull Keep your kitty cat and beer Get the schnitzmo liquor full It's bold and smooth, you will surely say It's got more taste than beer any day So
1: don't say beer, say bull My lion for- The Four Tops and Cool and the Gang join someone's bachelor party with hopes of getting the almost-groom fucked up for one last night of debauchery before he resigns himself to the old ball and chain.
5: Tonight you're still a bachelor. Tomorrow's almost here. So while you're still a free man, let's bring on the beer. Whoa! Whoa! I'm this nice to remember. So clear, you deserve to celebrate with more taste than beer. The bull's gotta taste so big, so bold, so smooth. Let's all party the Slim Malt Liquor Bull. Don't say beer, say bull. Hey gang, how about another bull? No one doesn't like the bull.
1: Even when the Letterman and Dr. Hook were cool, they weren't cool enough to be in a commercial. <clears throat> but they find themselves trying to sway a lonely gal into drinking more and more beer. They have a thrilleresque dance routine while the damsel in distress tries desperately to leave the set. Ooh,
3: you are so deep. Come on baby I'll buy you a beer. Bull. Bull. if you want to get your message loud from the go shows a lot more case to beer. So bold so cool. Your spit mouth nigga is in the group. Don't say fear, say spit mouth nigga. No like
1: the Maybe the most awkward commercial features 38 Special and the Marshall Tucker Band, who might be the same band, but with different psychopathies and facial hair. We played
5: a great game, so for the good sports here.
1: I'm not sure where they found it, but Tommy James and his Shondells face off in a pinball dance-off against the average white band.
5: With all these points, the record's mine, that's clear. Let's buy a man a nice cold beer. Oh, oh. You get a big ball of room when the bullets is here. It's just like a bull. We'll give more than beer. So don't say beer,
1: just say corn. Ball hey, the really scores. No like Teddy Pendergrass is treated to a taste of the bull, while random backup singers serenade him.
3: He's my man. He's so fine and dear. I treat him right with his favorite beer.
5: Bull. Bull. Girls, let me turn you to the big, bold bull. When you we'll make it clear. The bull's got more taste than beer you big bad so good is bad it's the schlitz make a bull no one does it like the bull Same thing. no one does it
1: like the bull wilson pickett pre-drunken manslaughterer made one hell of a spokesperson for schlitz <laughs> in this wacky prescient ad
5: hi this is wilson pickett and when it's come to singing old pickett's gonna look out for you because i want you to enjoy it but when it comes to drinking I only have to look out for Wilson pickets. Yeah, and that means I have to... Look out for the pool, y'all. Slips more liquor, Nobody makes more liquor like slips. Look out for the pool. Nobody makes more liquor like slips.
1: And one of the finest singers and personalities of all time, Rufus Thomas, brings a new dance your way, the funky, drunky bull slide. This is
5: Rufus Thomas with a brand new dance. I'm talking about Slip smoke, liquor, bull side. Down it, here we go Raise your right leg, then you put it down Move your left leg forward, and your body too Do what comes natural, when the bull's after you Now you move your head, from side to side Get slip, smaller liquor, and do the bull side. Yeah, Look out for the fool Slips for liquor fools Nobody makes more liquor like slits Nobody, nobody makes more liquor like slits Nobody
2: Now to truly understand the, the glory of these ads You have to know how they all end Each one of these ads is ended when a bull just breaks down a wall and bums rush the, the, all the people singing. They all just look like, ah, I'd run, run off the commercial. There's just been a bull waiting outside the bar, waiting to run you down.
1: I think this is how Rufus Thomas died.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they really are worth checking out. They're crazy and would never get made these days, but man, they're, they're fun to watch. Before Schlitz bulldozed the beer ad scene, it was cream that beckoned you into the sunshine of their love, with this amazing riftastic jingle for Falstaff beer. Thirstlaker was my nickname during my short stint as a semi-professional jello wrestler. Funny thing is that I used to compete against a muscular little person named Jitter Baker.
1: Long after the Ramones left home, they headed right to the package store to pick up some Joey-sized tall boys of high gravity steel reserve and then wrote 3 of the boppiest and hoppiest songs about the beer that blitzkrieged your brain. What you got to drink? What you do? We'll <laughs> be saying about wanting to be sedated, I don't think they had any clue what that malt liquor does to one's central nervous system. They actually had to sniff glue to recover.
2: Following in the bull-trodden footsteps of the Schlitz Blitz, the malt liquor St. Ides employed a cavalcade of hip-hop artists to plug their 40-ouncers. Unlike Schlitz, though, instead of using past their prime second-rate acts, St. Ides employed young and upcoming rap luminaries to spit rhymes about the crooked eye. Producer DJ Pooh was used as a consultant and brought in an unbelievable amount of talent from both the West and East Coast for the commercials, including Ice Cube, the Ghetto Boys, Cypress Hill, Warren G., Snoop Dogg, Nate Dogg, Tupac, Eric B. and Rakeem, the notorious B.I.G., EPMD, and my favorite of the bunch, the Wu Tang Clan.
5: Oh. Coming through with my Michelle and crew Two cents for a case, give me St. Ospreau In the mix of broken bottles and crushed up cans Met the cows in the jam Oh, I'll try it with c eyes in my system. Crack another. I'm blessed. Let's go get the next one and get over. The object is to stay sober. Lay on the sofa. Better yet, down my the while be champ, Dressed out, could never be and say jelly. Hit the deli for a cold one. Naturally blessed, yes. My rap is like a laser beam. The woods in the bushes. Say not fill like canteen. Crack the bottle of the c Sip it through those who don't realize th- drinking ain't only to be drunk. You can't drive. Keep my people lie And if the same don't know, you from a can of pain, pain. It was hot on a
2: how ODB didn't get a verse is a total mystery to me, since he's pretty much the patron saint of malt liquor. These commercials, along with Rundy and C's Adidas and Sprite's collaboration with Curtis Blow, Heavy D, Tribe Called Quest, and more, represent a turning point where hip-hop and commercials was no longer a small-scale marketing target group, but rather its own legitimate business campaign en route to a full-fledged enterprise.
1: No surprise that the Journey of Beer, Budweiser, recruited the Budweiser of Music, Journey, to be in a commercial.
3: Bring your kind of have that best day. Yeah. Just pour yourself a cold one. What you need is the best.
1: Don't stop bud leaving. Shit writes itself. (laughs) And as we mentioned in the Paisley Underground episode, alt-country stalwarts, the Long Riders, blame their participation in a series of Miller-like commercials for their career getting poured down the drain. The commercial prominently featured them talking about the power of independent music while singing songs about mega-conglomerate Pisswater.
3: younger days I felt like was open sky We're trying
5: to make make music with integrity instead of music that just lasts uh, six months. Our records certainly don't need to be
3: played backwards for anyone to understand what's going on. Now coast to coast and town to town Do what you gotta and our work it's around could be better than the be where right well, you say what you to say.
1: Made Excited about a real paycheck and the potential exposure, the band was shocked that a commercial that ran all the time during March Madness had the opposite effect. The ad was great for the beer, but not so much for the long riders who were mocked mercilessly by other bands and watched their record sales drop. Many other alternative bands did beer commercials, X, Los Lobos, the Del Fuegos, but none felt the sellout wrath like the Long Riders. For them, it was more of an unhappy hour.
2: Style has always been on sale. Rock and roll, whether the institution will admit it or not, has always been nearly equally indebted to the fashion as it is to the music. So, beauty and clothes have always been fertile ground for the trendiest youth to sell the latest fad. The Shangri La's unearthed a wave of insecurity in teen girls with their How Pretty Can You Get radio spots, giving out Revlon makeup tips for gals wanting to get dolled up for guys who are just about to die in a motorcycle crash, anyways. While Peter and Gordon had all the fellows ready for the makeout parties, even after their fraternity's garlic and tilapia eating contest, with their ads for McLean's Toothpaste. Peter and Gordon for McLean. It's McLean, toothpaste,
3: McLean, with a new kind of taste that is wild. What a taste, what a taste.
2: feeling stinky? Iron Butterfly was looking out for the hippies whose showerless existence was emitting psychedelic body odors as they were pushing Band's new spray-on deodorant. The antiperspirant promised to last almost as long as a live version of Enagata DeVita.
5: All right, all you lepidopterists, get out your steel nets and let's go catch the Iron Butterfly. And...
2: And what to wear. The Jefferson Airplane suggests that you pull on a pair of white Levi's that will make your ass feel like a lava lamp and make your balls, well, trip balls. No!
1: possible to determine the exact moment where selling out wasn't seen as quite the artistic mortal sin that it had been in the past several journalists point to the legendary honda ads of the 80s particularly lou reed's commercial a minute of quick cut out of focus scenes of gritty lower manhattan graffiti trash taxicabs cops prostitutes bums punks drug dealers all while the smoothly addictive instrumental part of Walk on the Wild Side languidly soundtracks the ultra-realistic depiction of Lou's Melu. At the climax of the sax solo, there he sits atop a red foreign scooter in front of the bottom-line club at night with black leather and dark aviator glasses peering into nothingness, and from nothingness, too. He slips off his glasses and looks into the camera to deadpan his single line. Hey! Don't settle for walk. The don't walk sign blinks behind him as his patented disinterest is again on full display. For someone as controversial and so willfully defiant as Lou Reed, to have corporate sponsorship was a game-changing moment for Rock and Roller's ability to participate in marketing without being tagged with the Kiss of Death sellout label. Reed's impeccable artistic and avant-garde integrity was unquestionable, and his cynicism legendary, yet still, there he was openly and fearlessly selling Honda scooters. Hell, Lou was a well-known motorcycle guy, yet still the commercial was so cool-looking, so raw and authentic, to the character of Reed and totally opposite of the usual plastic sheen of the 80s, almost as if he had bent the process of commercialization toward him rather than the other way around. The absolutely ludicrous notion of Lou Reed selling something beside himself and his music was so deeply sacrilegious that the act itself became a rebellion, a paradigm shift. Also, at this point, kids who grew up loving rock and roll were no longer kids. They were the adults who had the money to make stupid midlife impulse buys like a scooter. Nostalgia for their favorite musicians was now in play, and has been ever since.
2: Honda put a lot of money in the ad, and even got the editor of the Beat It video, Lawrence Bridges, to assemble the underdeveloped, French New Wave-inspired documentary-like shots. The commercial was groundbreaking in the advertising field, but didn't help Honda sell many scooters. The company that produced the commercial, Whedon & Kennedy, will go on to be one of the most successful advertising agencies, handling campaigns for Nike, ESPN, Facebook, McDonald's, Old Spice, and Budweiser, meaning you can at least partially blame Lou Reed for that stupid dilly-dilly shit. Honda also used other hip, left-of-the-dial artists to sell its scooters. There was a spectacularly goofy Devo commercial.
1: How to ride a Honda scooter. First, select
6: shirt-pant combo. We suggest this. Or this. Next, select appropriate shoes. We suggest... Two. Then choose a scooter that best expresses your individuality. There are
4: many sizes and colors.
1: And always wear your helmet.
2: Honda scooters. They're everything but ordinary. An uncomfortably flirtatious bit starring the clearly falsely prude Adam Ant and the ear-biting Grace Jones wanting him to pull up to her bumper.
5: Come on, Adam. I can't. It's easy. I've never ridden one. It's quick. I've never ridden anything. Ever. It's fun. I don't even drive. Honda
2: scooters. They're everything but ordinary.
3: It's sexy. I'll take it.
2: And then, just for good measure, an inexplicable one with Miles Davis, looking amazingly menacingly badass, and saying, well saying whatever the fuck he wants, not even remotely related to scooters. I'll play first,
5: and I'll tell you about it later. Maybe.
1: Long before Honda was putting the 80s outsiders in ads, rock music had been plenty enamored with cars. Paul Revere and the Raiders made one of the earliest examples of a music video as a commercial for Pontiac's GTO Judge. There were actually five songs recorded in dedication to the muscle car. Two made it on air, and the three others played in showrooms. With men dressed up in revolutionary garb, waxing poetic about gas-guzzling American cars, this was pretty much the invention of the Tea Party.
5: This court has been called in session to pass judgment on a special new car from Pontiac. All rise for the judge. Judge, the special great one from Pontiac, GTO. First-speed shifter, three-speeder four, Pontiac lamb air,
3: 366 horse, bag-tied wheels, 60-inch spoiler airfoil. Judge, your rule. Judge,
5: the special great one from Pontiac.
1: Famously, Bruce Springsteen turned down Chevrolet's offer for Born in the USA, because nothing sells trucks like PTSD. Bob Seger, however, happily took that silver bullet, and since then, the aforementioned Like a Rock is indelibly tied to images of slow-moving pickup trucks rumbling over rocks during football game commercial breaks. Really. There has been an endless stream of rockers, pop stars, and rappers glad to hip-hop in and take a ride on the cash highway.
2: Of course, the partnership of advertising and rock and roll isn't always a match made in heaven. Frank Zappa was paid 1000 bucks in 1967 to make a demo for Remington Electric Razors, and he recruited Linda Ronstadt to add the vocals. Despite Remington wanting a new sound commercial, they weren't quite ready for this much new sound, and decided that maybe this mustache was best left to grow wild.
3: You, thrills you
1: may even keep you from getting busted in
2: 1982 seven up wanted an ad campaign by a now artist and their agency gave 10,000 pounds to Gary Newman to record three different spots Gary got with his electric friends and made the most amazing soda pop art song <laughs>
3: Turn you off, automatic Tun you out all the static. Make it sharp and make it clean. When you were all in your machine. Pull out all the stuff and pull on the seven up. Pull out all the stuff and pull on the seven up. Pull out all the stuff and pull on the seven
2: up. The company wasn't sure what to do with this electronic new wave as they were expecting a more punk sound. And Gary was told to not. Make seven up yours. Newman got the last laugh, though, when he made a pretty amazing die-hard commercial where he plays cars on, well, cars. <laughs> In 1992, a massive ad agency somehow decided that Ween was the band that captured the spirit of the new Pizza Hut Zaw, The Insider, which had an epic amount of cheese interlaced in the crust. Ween, always known for their dedication and thoughtful approach to composing, threw a bunch of songs together, finally ending up with this delightfully greasy track called, Where'd the Cheese Go?
5: Where'd the Cheese Go? I don't know where did the cheese go? I don't know I don't know where did cheese go?
2: I don't know where did cheese go? I don't know Pizza Hut's marketing company wasn't happy and asked for a rewrite. And this is what they got back from Diener and Jeener. Where'd the motherfucking cheese go? I don't know where the motherfucking cheese go at? I don't know. The motherfucking? I don't know. Where the motherfucking cheese go I don't know. Pizza Hut surprisingly passed. Why Scotchgard didn't come a calling? We'll never know. King of the Swedish ukuleleist Jens Lechman was once approached by LG about licensing a song for a commercial. He said that he didn't want to do that, but he'd happily record a song for them. They agreed, and he later sent them this swinging track. company said thanks, but no thanks, and then, in a textbook use of capitalism, proceeded to hire an imposter band to make a near copy of the original song that they wanted.
1: There are a few artists that go above and beyond to appear in as many different commercials as possible in an effort for complete total media control through constant attention and pandering. We are calling this batch The Shill's. We already mentioned Bob Dylan, who happily loaned his grumpy demeanor and croaky vocal talents to IBM, Cadillac, Chrysler, Apple, Pepsi, Google Instant, Shobani yogurt, and of course, Victoria's Secret. How many products can an old man sell before he makes his own whiskey? Elton John apparently can't stop himself from making ads appearing in commercials for Cadbury Chocolates, Sasan Jeans, Roland Pianos, Pioneer... Ebony Menswear, Snickers, Chess King Men's Stores, Airtran, The State of Georgia, Dead Blondes, The American Milk Processing Board, Got Milk, and The Pink Pussycat Boutique Adult Toy Superstore. Remember that Who album, The Who Sellout? Well, it turns out to be rather autobiographical. Roger, Pete, and the boys started their lifelong campaign to outsource themselves with some rather inexplicable adverts, including this one for the United States Air Force.
3: Jack
5: Hi, this is Pete Townsend of The Who. I just want to say that the United States Air Force is a great place to be, a great place to learn a space age skill and serve your country too. The Aerospace Team, that's where all the breakthroughs are. See your United States Air Force recruiter. Find out how you too can fly the skies, reach for the moon, touch the stars in the United States Air Force.
1: If they couldn't interest you in enlisting for military service during the height of Vietnam for some reason, perhaps a milkshake is more your speed.
5: Shake it up with milk and make a shake. great yeah, great Hello? This is Keith Moon of The Who here. Two new Great Shake Shake mix scenes Great Shake's milk chocolate and Great Shake's cherry vanilla flavors. Both turn milk into a rich, thick shake. So thick, it stands up to a straw. Great Shake's! Great Shake's! Great Shake's! Great shakes! It's so
1: clean. And Townsend then went on to license his songs to as many companies as possible Nissan, Dell Computers, and Nambla, just to name a few. Daltrey instead used his Golden Locks to promote American Express, Bolivar watches, and Time Life classic rock comps.
2: What Ringo Starr lacked in drumming ability, he totally made up for his inability to say no to any director with $10 and a video camera.
1: Have you seen Caveman?
2: The most famous drunk on the island of Sodor, Starr was able to appear in ads for Apple Juice, Schweppes, Pizza Hut, Oldsmobile, the 7-Eleven Burger Bar, Century 21, Wet Kimonos, Sun Country Wine Cooler, Sketcher, and several Japanese products that I have no clue what he was trying to sell. Of course, he didn't either.
6: Hello.
5: To all Japanese people. I came here to talk about the simple life.
2: And taking the throne of masters of merchandising from the Beatles would have to be KISS, who have been able to put their likenesses and brand on over 3,000 products, including action figures, condoms, a pinball machine, cologne, Hello Kitty, air guitar strings, cookie jars, lip balm, air fresheners, and a coffin, which is called the KISS casket. It's currently the only viable way of ensuring that all of eternity will know how bad of musical taste you once had. It's basically as if KISS had a Walmart-sized merch table. Speaking of Walmart, it is one of the many non-KISS products that Gene, Ace, Paul, and Chris were also ever so happy to do business with. Dunkin' Donuts, Hyundai, Canon Digital Cameras, Pepsi and Dr. Pepper, Nike, Nike, the Swedish Lottery, <laughs> and of course, Folger's Coffee.
1: Sometimes the most jarring instances of musician merchandising comes from underground artists who are often held in high esteem because they've spent their careers working so hard against the confines of mainstream. The perpetually shirtless Iggy Pop certainly raised a few eyebrows when he licensed Lust for Life, his anthemic ode to liquor, drugs, flesh machines, lotion, and hypnotizing chickens to Carnival Cruise Line which in all fairness does offer its patrons lots of liquor, lotion, and chickens. But that was no fun compared to his ads for swift cover car insurance, which were as disturbing as they were disappointing, particularly this advert with a horrifying pelvic-thrusting puppet called Lil Iggy. So,
5: little guy, you ready for our big road trip? Yeah! Yeah!
0: I got me some new
5: wheels. Yeah. can give you a car insurance quote in just
3: 60 seconds. Balloons. And it's totally online,
5: so you can store your documents online and print them when you need them. Ow! I can't reach.
1: See, you've got some rocking new driving shoes.
5: Rock and roll, man.
1: Let's do this. Get a life. Get SwiftCover. We recommend that you don't watch that video. Unless you've had it in your ear before.
2: And you might take Tom Waits's long history of litigiously protecting his likeness and distinctive sound against a myriad of copyright-infringing businesses, including once suing the spots off Chester Cheetah, as an indication that he might not be the most likely candidate for selling dog food. Well... As dog travels through the envied and often tempting world of man, there is one thing
3: above all that tempts him most. The taste of meat. And that is why Purina makes Butcher's Blend. Butcher's Blend is the first dry dog food with three tempting, meaty tastes. Beef, liver, and bacon. All in one bag. So come on, deliver your dog from the world of temptation. It's the world of Butcher's Blend. The first dry dog food with three meaty tastes.
2: Around the time of Heart Attack and Vine, he was switching labels and coming off some bad dealings with manager Herb Cohen and did a one-off voiceover for Perina's Butcher Blend. Of the enterprise, Waits said, I was down on my luck, and I've always liked dogs. Reflecting on it later, he told an interviewer, They always want me to do ads for underwear and cigarettes, but I never did them. I did one, and I'll never do it again. But for that one glorious moment, Tom was truly making it rain. Dogs. Ever feel like
1: you've been cheated? by lesser quality dairy products Punk poster boy Johnny Rotten has the spread for you Do I buy Country Life
6: butter because it's British Do I buy Country Life because I yearn for the British countryside Or because it's made only from British milk Nah I buy Country Life because I think it tastes the best. It's not
1: about Great
5: Britain, it's about great butter.
1: In 2008, Mr. Lydon enhanced his limited public image by churning out a series of baffling ads for Country Life Butter, which reportedly made him millions. That's a lot of biscuits. Before you go thinking that this move would have made his punk rock cred toast, The cash was used to help jumpstart a pill tour, a very fine example of how the money that these musicians make often goes right back into artistic endeavors or public image limited albums. (laughs) Countless records were made and tours were financed with money made in advertising. Of course, equal amounts were probably spent on yachts brimming with hookers and blow. So call it a wash.
2: In the muddy waters of commercial music and creative music, there is flow both ways. For example, there are those musicians who spent a part of their time fully dedicated to writing commercials as they were concurrently tearing up the charts. Not only did he write the songs, but Barry Manilow also wrote the infuriatingly catchy jingles, I am stuck on Band-Aid because Band-Aid stuck on me, and that dastardly, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there which also allowed him to buy several Copa Cabanas. And maybe a few Mandy's as well. Or how about Rock's personality-averse, unreliable narrator, Randy Newman, who penned, with Manilow, the I'm a Pepper, Dr. Pepper song. He also liked to double-dip his melodies, using them for his albums and his moonlighting projects, like the tune for Dayton, Ohio, 1903, which he cribbed from himself for a Nutrasweet commercial.
5: Would you like to have something sweet? What you got there? Nothing. It'll be matchy. My mom doesn't let us have stuff like that. My mom does. Something you and your kids can agree on. Something with Nutrasweet. Instead of sugar. Would you like to have something sweet? So do you think you could have your mom
2: talk to my mom? Jim Brickman is an easy-listening piano superstar, but you probably know him best for his 15-second masterworks, GE, We Bring Good Things to Life, or the We're Flintstone Kids vitamin song that is now stuck in my brain for the next day or so. Thanks a lot, Jimbo.
1: It's not only enterprising artists that swing back and forth between the two worlds. Sometimes, songs that start out as commercial fodder end up being respected and lucrative songs as singles or album cuts. In 1964, General Motors commissioned the song Little GTO to give their new Pontiac model a rock and roll edge. The song became a top 40 hit for Ronnie and the Daytonas and was even covered by the Beach Boys. The Carpenters, We've Only Just Begun, started life as a bank advertisement, which makes sense as it excites me about as much as opening a low-interest savings account. The left-field hit Forever Autumn, off the bizarre disco-sci-fi-rock-opera War of the World's The Musical, was initially a song encouraging kids to buy more Legos. David Dundas, was a no-name power-pop musician until his song was picked up for Brutus Jeans. The lyrics were tweaked and played in 30-second chunks worldwide, which sent the original song to the top of the charts across the globe.
3: When I wake up in the morning light When I put on my jeans and I feel alright I put Brutus Jeans on I pull my on I pull jeans on I pull my jeans
1: on Justin Timberlake was paid 6 million dollars to make McDonald's I'm lovin' it slogan but liked it enough to release it as a single in Europe but by a long shot the greatest instance of a commercial making the jump to the big time is the ubiquitous Coca-Cola attractive worldly co-ed sing-along star shot, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing.
3: I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow no apple, apple trees and honeybees and, honey beans beans and, and beans snow white
4: turtle dove. dove. I like to teach the world to sing, sing with me, perfect common, perfect common.
1: In 1971, Coke unleashed the hilltop multicultural love and harmony commercial that instantly became one of the most famous and recognizable commercials of all time. Inspired by watching kids laughing and chugging Cokes during a layover at an Irish airport, Billy Backer wrote, I'd like to buy the world a Coke on a napkin. Layovers certainly never give me feelings of love and harmony, no matter how much Coke I have coursing through my veins. He gave the idea to songwriters and proceeded to make the most expensive commercial ever at the time. But it worked. As the ad aired, kids started calling radio stations, clamoring for the DJs to play that Coke commercial. The commercial was quickly reworked into full-length singles, sans the Coke references, by two groups, English popsters, the New Seekers, and American folksters, Hillside Singers, who had been assembled to record the song initially. Both versions did well, but the New Seekers went to number one in England and number seven in the U.S., selling 96,000 copies in a single day, en route to 12 million sales total. And then Don Draper wrote it again in 2015, completing the Ouroboros of the song's artistic commercial cycle. It's the real thing.
2: Of course, it is also important to acknowledge that there are countless noble acts of defiance against commercialization. Pete Seeger left the very successful group, the Weavers, after getting outvoted on doing a commercial for Lucky Strike Cigarettes. Jim Morrison turned down seventy-five grand to use Light My Fire in a car ad. They seriously were going to change the lyrics to Come on, Buick, Light My Fire. Both Super Furry Animals and Pulp deflected Coke's forceful six-figure approaches. Coke went ahead and made a bad cover version anyways and used that instead. Or how about ZZ Top's Billy Gibbons, not even tempted by Gillette's million-dollar offer to shave off his beard? I'd shave my beard for a ham sandwich.
1: And when you did, you might find another ham sandwich (laughs) in your shavings.
2: Bonus. As the world around us becomes more populated with constant native advertising, so too does the distinction between the music world and commercial interests slowly fade away. When Beyonce debuted her single, Formation, at the Super Bowl, which was a song that indicated her choice of post-successful coital dining was Red Lobster, the chain seafood restaurant saw a 33% increase in sales. Now that's a lot of Cheddar Bay Biscuits. And while there's no proof, it's hard to imagine that there wasn't, or certainly couldn't have been, a call made to the executives beforehand stating that it would be very easy to change the lyrics of the song to mention Long John Silver's instead of Red Lobster, if there wasn't a financial offering for this inclusion of their brand. This sort of baked-in product placement songwriting seems to be the future of music commercialization. More sophisticated targeting of music listeners who be unaware or care nothing that the song is an ad as much as it is a song. Done correctly, artists can own the system that once exploited them.
1: Nearly the entirety of modern life can be commodified, packaged, and monetized. And while being fully supportive of both artists' need to make money to survive and increase their exposure, and artists who want to create free of the influence of outside money, overall it just seems sort of sad. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, the jingle is dead. Most musicians appearing in ads are bathed in a desperate irony. MC Hammer as a man-baby singing You-Can't-Touch-This might be some sort of nader, or possibly an apocalyptic portent. Music that is blatantly, even ridiculously used for marketing is intuitively understood as manipulative and reviled. People want to pretend that music used to make money rather than music made to make money is somehow superior. But as the vast myriad of bizarre and delightful intersectionary samples we've witnessed in the past hour highlights, there is nothing wrong with a little bit of honesty in the persuasion.
2: I think the one thing about this is there were so many commercials. Like, we just kept finding them and kept finding them. There's just no way to be comprehensive on this because there's tons of ads out there. And every
1: year it's more and more and more. So in the 60s, it was kind of easy to go through and pick out most of them but in but by the 80s there's no way Pepsi Coke everybody had huge stars selling their wares and there's just no way to keep up with that
2: A lot of times like smaller local bands would do do these sorts of ads too and a lot of those songs are a lot of fun too they're just but those songs don't garner as much attention since they're more local bands that not many people know
1: more like the private press of commercial jingles,
2: absolutely well, and this idea for a topic was was suggested by our friend Morris who does the see here podcast and love that album podcast you know he sent over a lot of fun stuff that was like stuff local to where he was Australia and, and some of it was real big, like Abba doing commercials and stuff like that that we would have never seen you know it only been in Australia, but there is kind of geographical <laughs> Limitations to some of these songs. Yeah,
1: it's a lot of fun to look at them. We'll put a bunch of videos online. We probably won't have a Spotify playlist for this episode, but we'll put a lot of videos on our website and on Facebook. We'll maybe we'll post a few there just so people can take a look at these. There, some of them are amazing.
2: Now you do have like a kind of a bootleg record with some of this stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I have a record that's as far as I can tell. It's called fifteen thirty sixty. It's an album of ads that was sent to DJs to play, and there's no cover for it, though for some reason it is on, like, splatter-colored vinyl, but there's a sheet of paper with it telling you what the songs are with the bands all misspelled, highlighting concerts, Um, it has some commercials in it for different things, and in that letter it tells you when you can play the ads, like from what date to what date because they won't be relevant after a certain time. It's it's pretty fun. We could post that. It's really short. I think a, a, quite a few of these were used to post bail,
2: right? Yeah, the money the money made from this definitely saved <laughs> saved and wrecked many lives. All right, you ready to play some songs? Yeah, of course. Alright, I am going to start off the song portion of the show with a song called Dragon Lady by the Dean Fibbers. Dragon Lady by the Geraldine Fibbers, who were a uh, cool, California, noisy, experimental alt-country band from the mid-early 90s. That's a single. Uh, it was on Sympathy for the Record Industry, came out in 95. It showed up on an album later. They're just a fun band. Joe, you might have to help me fill in the gaps. I didn't do a lot of research. They're fronted by Carla Bozulich.
1: Bozulich? Th- I think it's Bozulich, um, who is really good and she's has a lot of really good solo albums too
2: yeah she's does a uh, track by track cover of willie nelson's um redheaded stranger that's just phenomenal Uh, that's i think the how i heard of her first and then i just kind of went back and heard you know some of the geraldine fibbers and really like the song it definitely has that kind of early 90s production value at times it sounds a little dated i guess but that's not not a problem for me and the uh it does mention 7-Eleven, so it has a nice commercial interest. Robbing the 7-Elevens, so that may not work for a commercial, but you know, whatever.
1: Alright, my first track is going to be by Julian Cope, and the song is called Beaver. <laughs> Alright, that was Julian Cope with the song Beaver off of his 1990 album Skellington, which was released on Zippo Records. Now, Julian Cope is fairly well known, I would think. He's a really good writer. He's, he was in the band Teardrop Explodes with was it? Ian McCulloch from Echo and the Bunnymen. He's had some solo hits, all sort of. And in 1988, he was making his second record for Island Records, which ended up being My Nation Underground, which was sort of the biggest hit album for him. And he hated it. He hated how much it was overproduced. He didn't have any control over it. So while that was being recorded, he would sneak into the studio and work on this album, Skellington. And it's really kind of underproduced to a point and has a very similar kind of feel to it as like... As a Skip Spence kind of thing. It's really dark and lonely sounding. And it's a very interesting element. It leads to his next Island Records, Peggy's Suicide, which is probably his best album. But when he completed Skellington, he gave it to Island Records. And they said, there's no way we're putting this out. They didn't like it at all. So he released it, sent it off using mail order. So he'd send it out on cassette to fans. And then he also made the Press the Vinyl on Sippo Records. And overall, the album is really good. He's not someone that I followed a whole lot in his career. I like some of his stuff. I really like his writing. He's got a lot of essays and even a book about krautrock or the history of and Japanese psych and just psych rock in general. Really good person to look into and read, read some of his writing.
2: Joe. <clears throat> yeah. Would you say that Beaver is a damn good song?
1: My next track is by a band called Hair and Skin Trading Company, and the song is called Go Round. That was Hair and Skin Trading Company with a song called Go Round from their 1993 album Overvalence. So Hair and Skin Trading Company is a band that formed from the sort of the ashes of the band Loop. Loop was a trio, a UK trio that was kind of before there was shoegaze, but they're kind of like a shoegazy kraut rock band and one of the best bands i've ever heard and when they broke up two of the guys the main the main guy um i can't remember his name went off to form um, his own band called maine but the other two guys formed Heronskin skin trading company and they kind of may they took loops sound and just kind of revved it up made it louder and a little harder edged um, I like Loop better, but this album is is pretty good and it's I would like for more people to hear it. On this song Go Round, Letitia Sadier from Stereolab sings on it, which is really nice. Most of their songs are just kind of reverb and very Jesus and Mary Chaney at times, but still again, louder and faster, almost like a early Black Sabbath Jesus and Mary Chaney combo. Uh, with Krautrock in it. It's, it's really, really good stuff, worth hearing. And this has no tie-in, neither does the Julian Cope, to anything we covered. I just thought, especially with this one, that it's a band that should get more attention. They haven't really had a whole lot of albums. This was their second. But they've got a lot of great stuff. They are absolutely worth looking into.
2: All right. I'm going to finish this up today with a song called... Sauce Master by a guy named David Graves.
6: When I'm feeling kind of hungry, be it morning, noon, or night, I just pull into the Waffle House. They always treat me right. Find my favorite table, the booth is nice and wide, and I always order hash browns because they make a tasty side. Sometimes I like them scattered, sometimes I like them chunked, but every time I get them, I always like them dunked in Heinz ketchup. Sometimes when the mornings are just a little tough, I add some Heinz 57 to my coffee cup. 57 on my chili, 57 on my pie. Now that'll raise the eyebrows of the people walking by. Yum. I like mustard on my pork chops, mustard on my ham. I even like it on my raisin toast. That's the kind of guy I am. And steak sauce on a waffle tastes really good to me. Gives them something else to talk about at table number three. They just don't know what they're missing. Mmm. Once I got a burger, it was sitting on my plate, and I needed something special that would really make it great. I started with some mustard smeared across the bun, and then I had a Worcestershire just to make it fun. I went and put some ketchup on the pickles and the cheese, then a touch of 57 when it occurred to me. I just invented the Heinz Burger. I know what you're thinking, I know what you're gonna say, but man, I can't help it, I just like my food that way. So I stop at every Waffle House that my path crosses, all I need is a menu and lots of Heinz sauces. Hey, I'm just a normal fella, an ordinary gent, but in my heart's a burning passion for Heinz condiments. Right down there at the Waffle House They call me the Sauce Master Cause I like them all I like all those Heinz sauces I like the ketchup and the mustard And the, and the Heinz 57 And ooh, the Worcestershire drives me crazy I just love them all Sometimes I like to put ketchup right on my mustard and Sometimes I put mustard all right, on Alright,
2: so that song was called Sauce Master And you might have guessed, if you listen to the lyrics, that that is a Waffle House record. If you know anything about me, you know that I'm very passionate about the Waffle House in-restaurant label Waffle Records. They're really hard to get, and they're getting more and more expensive. Like, ridiculously. Way more than anybody should ever pay for two songs about waffles. But I did manage to get my hands on one. And, uh, boy, I'm glad I did. So this is a song. Again, I, I go ahead and rewind and listen to it again if you missed the message. But it's about somebody who really likes to put Heinz products in everything. And I do mean everything. Not a ton to say. Nothing about the artist. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed it.
1: All right, you ready to finish up some trivia? Absolutely. So we're going to play those clips again that I played earlier. It's five clips. And... Just looking for first the artist, the title of the song, and then if you can, and it's gonna be really tough for a lot of these, tell me what commercial the song played in. Okay. Alright, so here we go. Track one. him his heart. Track two
4: countdown engines on three check ignition and make art slow we will you this city's ground control
1: track
5: three
1: Track four.
5: How's about cooking something up? Track five.
4: Sing? Saw you hanging from a tree. And I may believe
1: it was me. Okay. What do you have for number one?
2: All right. Number one is Venus and Furs by the Velvet Underground. Mm-hmm. I want to say it was in a car commercial or something. Dunlop Tires. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that weird? Yeah. A lot of rubber. Okay. The next song was Cat Power's cover of uh, uh, Space Oddity. Yep. I'm going to guess Apple. I know she did an Apple song, like an iPod song. I don't think this was it, though. This is another car one. It's for a Lincoln. Okay. Okay.
1: Really great version. Her, Her voice is amazing.
2: Yeah. All right, number three was Sweet with Ballroom Blitz. Um, I I know I've heard this in a commercial. Um, I'm going to say like Geico Insurance or something. You
1: know, after I put this in here, I was like, Ballroom Blitz has probably been played in many ads. Uh, The one that I was looking for specifically was Mitsubishi, but I'm sure that there have been other ads, and I just I should have looked that up first. But whatever you got at home,
2: I'll trust you. All right, uh, the next song is Hey Good Lookin' by some approximation of Hank Williams Sr. And I think it was Velveeta, because I think they mentioned cheese at the end. They do, they mention cheese a lot. It was hard to come up with a clip where they
1: didn't have cheese somewhere in there. It's from the Cheese National Dairy Board. That's what they're oh, okay. promoting, is just cheese, eat more cheese. Back yourself up.
2: They they need to get with uh, this David Graves guy and get some sauce on that cheese.
1: <laughs> get some
2: Heinz in there. <laughs> I just like to have slices of cheese with with Heinz 57.
1: Mm. Like a sandwich where cheese is the bread <laughs> and then Heinz and more cheese is the innards.
2: I feel like it's a kind of a chips and salsa type situation where you t- dip it in. Okay, last song is i'm sticking with you also by the velvet underground i have no I have no idea uh this is I'll one
1: it, I had no idea with either, but do you want to take a guess
2: sure maybe sort of some sort of like a dating site match dot com or something
1: it's Hyundai
2: oh man all right we uh want to say thanks to Morris, again, for giving us the idea. I think it was a lot of fun, so we really appreciate that.
1: The always wonderful Morris, who is... Yeah, he's
2: such a sweet, wonderful man.
1: Seems like one of the kindest people ever. I'm sure he's probably killing people and storing them in this basement, but comes across like a really nice person.
2: I want to say uh, hi and thank you to Tim. He wrote a really nice message on Instagram just saying how much he enjoyed the show. and that We just... want to say thanks for reaching out, and we really love hearing from, from people.
1: And as always, we want to thank Pantheon for allowing us to be part of their podcasting network, which is full of amazing podcasts, growing more and more every week, it seems. One I've mentioned in the past that I really like is Let It Roll, and on that one, they go through and often talk with authors about music books that they've written. Really good podcast there are probably thirty to forty on there now that are all worth listening to
2: absolutely Pantheon has encouraged us, and I think it's a it's a great thing to to remind everybody how important it is to go vote. make sure you're registered depending on where where you live if you're an American citizen and which states you can still check and see if you're still able to register to vote and you might have time to also check and make sure that your registration's. A-OK, because strange things have happened, but um, it's important to exercise your, your Democratic voice.
1: And if you're going to use mail-in voting, which is a really good idea because not everybody wants to risk dying, just make sure you send it out early. We got any social media? We do. Come check us out on Instagram, Twitter, on both of those, our handle is Highway Hi-Fi Pod on Facebook. It's easy to find us just by searching. You can find us on Spotify, Highway HiFi fi Podcast. Just do a search there. We're adding playlists for shows that we've done in the past just so people can, we're trying to catch up on those so people can listen to a lot of the music that we played during turntable talk, some of those clips. We want to make sure that people can hear full songs if they'd like to. And also email us. Our email address is Podcast at gmail.com. Send us a how-do-you-do or anything you want. Just reach out and say hi.
2: Remember to go spend some money at a record store if you can, or support an artist, support a record label, if you're able. It's always a good thing. We certainly talk about other alt- sources of income for bands, but the vast majority of bands don't make anything off streaming, really, and, and they don't, don't get to sell great shakes. So they need people like you and me and to buy their products and support physical media or online media. Just support them is the main thing. All right, and with that, we appreciate you for listening, and we will talk to you next time.
1: Understand your colon. He'll <coughs> make you the sphincter of sad songs. <coughs> Daddy crap bass. <coughs> Twenty more minutes to go. (laughs) Till that till the room is vacant. It excites me about as much as looking at Karen Carpenter.
0: What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing?
5: What's the problem? What's the problem?
0: Would you lie? Would you cheat?
5: Would they shop? Would they shop?
0: Would you kill?
5: Yes. My mom and dad. My mom and my
3: dad.
0: From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th.